This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 14, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. What should our military's obligations entail? Should we devote so much of our military budget to defending countries wealthy enough to defend themselves? Chris Preble, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of the book The Power Problem, addressed that issue for those gathered at Cato University on Capitol Hill. When I talk to generally right-of-center audiences, uh, whether you call yourself a libertarian, a classical liberal, or a good old-fashioned conservative, um, most of the talks that you have heard up to this point and that you'll hear, for example, on Thursday, talk about the, the size of government, the growth of government, how uh, the founders were very fearful of uh, how a, a growing government would impede individuals' liberties. And, and I think there's general agreement among people who, who share this broad tent on the center-right, uh, Cato included, uh, that most of the things that our government does and most of the things that it spends money on are, uh, are unwise, are wasteful, are unnecessary, harmful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there usually is an exception for military spending. Now, one of the reasons why this is, and I tackle it very directly in the book, in the Power Problem book, is that of all the things that our government does, uh, defending us is one of the few things that we actually agree that it should be doing. Right? This is one of the few genuinely public goods. Public goods is a term that's thrown around a little too recklessly in this town. Uh, but, but defense, strictly speaking, is the prototypical public good. Right? If we've learned nothing from our basic economics class, and I am not an economist, so that's about the extent of my economics knowledge, uh, it is that uh, a public good is when uh, the beneficiaries are many. It is difficult to charge the beneficiaries for the benefits. It is difficult to exclude the payers from the non-payers. All of those things that we are told characterize a public good, and defense is clearly one of them. On the other hand, uh, I submit that the founders were aware of this concept, and it's no accident, of course, that the common defense is one of the core essential elements of the Constitution. In fact, uh, if you look back at the rationale for why they moved away from the Articles of Confederation to a stronger Constitution, a stronger federal state, was a uh, Defense was one of the key components, right? It was the fear that the individual states could be picked off one by one, that there was a classic kind of collective action problem. Would Georgia really rise to the defense of New Hampshire? Would South Carolina even rise to the defense of North Carolina? Those were the kinds of considerations that went into amending and essentially and ultimately scrapping the Articles of Confederation and opting for a constitution, right? It's a stronger federal state, better capable of defending the United States as opposed to individual states in a confederacy. Um, and yet, while we all agree that's true, when I read the Constitution, I'm struck by how much the founders erred still on the side of liberty over security. Um, my favorite example of this is, uh, recall that the Constitution granted Congress the power to raise and support armies and to provide and maintain a navy. And this was not by accident. 
Okay, the founders had a very ambivalent view of ground armies, that is, of uh, men tramping around their fields and towns, uh, whereas the Navy, they sensed, was a little bit less threatening. They were a little bit less worried about a Navy and yet still concerned about the cost, and so ultimately determined that everything that was spent on the military would obviously be paid for by Congress in advance. Um, this was not so radical a notion, of course, back then to have no standing army. Heck, uh, for that matter, the Brits didn't really have a standing army. They raised a small army when they needed it, and they also relied on mercenaries and, and uh, uh, Hessians and the like uh, to uh, wage their wars around the world. Later, when they uh, developed an empire, they relied on uh, local forces that they co-opted uh, to fight their wars for them, and England always had a very small army by, by any standard. <clears throat> And I think before we just cast aside the founders' concerns about uh, the, the, the threat posed by a, a large state and a, and a state that grows by virtue of waging war, uh, we should dwell momentarily on what their concerns were. Um, you've probably heard the expression, war is the health of the state. Um, that's, a, that's a fairly famous statement. Um, others, uh, Charles Tilley, a famous uh, political scientist slash sociologist, said uh, the state made war and war made the state. This notion that state formation and the rise of government is inextricably connected to the waging of war is, goes back for, uh, for centuries. Madison explained the rationale in 1795 in a letter to a, to a friend, of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it contains the seeds of all others. No nation can preserve its liberty in the midst of perpetual warfare. Now, you're all learned people. You've probably also heard a variation on that theme, but war is the health of the state is not a, a new concept. But what we deal with today, what they were dealing with then, is that there is a tension, of course, between fighting a war and watching the state grow, or preparing for war to deter war and presumably prevent the state from growing even more, right? This is the logic, I think, that most conservatives and some libertarians embrace. They see our preparations for war as primarily uh, forestalling an even greater threat to liberty here at home and an even greater, more intrusive expansion of the federal government as well. Well, over the next few minutes, I want to try to challenge those assumptions a little bit. And the way I'm going to do it is to refocus on what exactly we mean by defense. Okay? This is a, and, and I very carefully uh, use the term defense differently than I use the term military spending, and I hope you'll see why in a few minutes. Okay? Let's start at the beginning. Now, you might think that the founders were extraordinarily naive in designing this, this new government that actually required Congress to declare a war before the president could use the military. What a concept. Um, what, what were they facing back then, right? They had, the British had barely evacuated the territories that they promised to evacuate under the Treaty of Paris, and that meant they were still in Canada, and they were still basically to the west of the Appalachian Mountains, more or less. You had the Spanish in control of Florida. You had the, uh, the French Navy very active uh, throughout the Atlantic Ocean and holding a number of strategic possessions in the Caribbean. And, of course, you had the British Navy, uh, which was regularly rounding up American merchant sailors and the like and impressing them into the British Navy. It was an extremely perilous time 
for this young republic. And I think many people, the betting, the betting would have been uh, maybe 50-50 that they pull it off or maybe less than that. How do we compare, how can we compare our current situation to what they were facing back then? Okay, I think it is inconceivable that we can say that today, here in the United States, September 7, 2010, that our security is more perilous than theirs was. By any objective standard, we are far more secure than, I argue, any other country in the world. And it's not primarily by virtue of the fact that we have the largest military in the world, roughly the size of all the other militaries in the world combined, if you count it by spending. Okay? No. The reason why we have such a large military is because we have expanded and adapted the concept of defense and self-defense to include the defense of others. I think we should dwell on this for a little bit. Okay, again, let's, let's presume, I'm going to pretend that we're all basically in agreement that one of the few core functions of government is defense, maybe the only core function of government. Okay? That a government is supposed to exist to protect the, the parties to its social contract. And why is it that we act as though that is not the purpose of the French government, or the South African government, or the Japanese government, or South Korea? I could go on. But that is how we have behaved, very explicitly. It started to a certain extent. I'm a historian, and I studied a lot during the Cold War period. And it started during the Cold War when, immediately after World War II, you had uh, formerly powerful industrial states thoroughly broken by war, completely shattered. Okay? And there was a legitimate risk, I argue, that uh, these people so shattered by warfare would be tempted by uh, socialism or communism or some variation thereof, be tempted by a model that uh, uh, supplanted the private uh, enterprise and free market system that we hold dear in place of, kind of some, some kind of state-directed thing. Now, you can argue that we didn't w succeed entirely because, of course, Europe is basically a big socialist state and arguably becoming more socialist by the day as the EU kind of stretches their tentacles all over the place there. But that was the logic. <clears throat> that was the logic of our extending a security guarantee to Europe under NATO. That was the logic of our extending a security guarantee to Korea when the North invaded the South, and then subsequent to that, and there we remain to this day, a party to a bilateral agreement with the South Koreans to defend them from the North. Uh, we remain in Okinawa and parts of Japan under a similar uh, rationale that it is in our interest that Japan be dependent upon the United States for its security, and that is the way we would like to keep it. And this is very hard for me to reconcile as a libertarian, as a classical liberal. It's very hard for me to reconcile how it is that we came around to this idea that it really is our duty that is all Americans to defend others who are capable of defending themselves and who should be encouraged to do so. Again, maybe it's a question of timing. Maybe I would say that it made sense in 1945, 1955, starts to make a little bit less sense in 1965. You go down the line. Somewhere along there, since the end of World War II, I would argue that it no longer made sense for us to have allies who have only liabilities and not a lot of capabilities. What I'd like to have is allies that can actually help us from time to time when we need it. Chris Preble is Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of the book, The Power Problem. You can get your copy at Cato.org.